This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Make sure you subscribe to get regular updates every Thursday. Now this week we're getting to know the most important churchman in 12th century England. At the time of his death in 1167, Aylred of Revo Abbey in North Yorkshire was immediately regarded as a saint. During his life, he had many accomplishments, serving as a royal steward, an emissary to the Pope, and abbot of Revo, as well as demonstrating his talent as an author, preacher, and spiritual mentor to his monks. And today, as we'll discover, he's also starting to be considered as something of a medieval gay icon. Later this year, English Heritage will be unveiling a new exhibition and interpretation exploring St. Aylred's life and work at Revo Abbey. So helping us learn more about him in advance of that are Senior Properties Historian Dr. Michael Carter and Interpretation Assistant Nick Collinson. Michael, let's start off with you. We've described Aylred as being an important figure in 12th century religious circles, but can you give us some more detail about who Aylred was and why he was so important? Well, he's a native Northumbrian. He's born in 1110. He's the son of a married priest in Hexham, and he's destined for great things from childhood. His talents are recognised as a young boy. He goes off to the court of King David in Scotland, where he rises to be the king's steward, undertaking important diplomatic missions. But from the outset, from his youth, he has a very, very strong religious vocation, which he realises by joining Revo Abbey when he's aged 24 years. And as a monk, he prospers and rapidly rises to high office, becomes abbot of Revo in 1147. He's an exceptional author, unbelievably talented monastic leader. He is truly inspirational, and his writings, which are full of love and compassion, have the power to move and inspire to this day. It's said with some justification that Aylward was the most important churchman of 12th century England, and certainly among the most important monastic leaders, if not the most important monastic leader of 12th century England. Let's go back a little bit into his early life before all of those amazing achievements. You touched on where he was from. What was his family background like? Well, he's an Anglo-Saxon, and for generations they had been hereditary priests at Hexham. Hexham is incredibly important to the history of early Christianity in northern England. It's associated with some of the great Anglo-Saxon saints of Northumbria and North Britain. Of course, going not just northern England, but going into Scotland, people like St. Wilfred and St. Cuthbert. It's through his family, these hereditary priests, that he acquires this great devotion to these northern saints, especially St. Cuthbert. But the religious route isn't open to him. It's because of church reforms around this time, it becomes forbidden for the offspring of married priests to themselves become priests. And for him to realise a religious vocation, he was going to have to become a monk. But the secular is the first option which is pursued for Aylred. He goes to the school in Durham, a very, very important centre of scholarship and learning at that time for a few years. And as a 14-year-old boy, he goes to Scotland and the court of King David. And his talents are such that he rises through the ranks to be the steward of King David. He's an incredibly important, influential figure 
figure there. He's already writing works as well, actually, theological works and religious works. But it's as a diplomat that his talents are being esteemed. And he goes on a mission to the Archbishop of York in 1134. That's an episode in his life which is going to have huge significance. And why was that significant? Well, it's whilst in on this mission that he hears of Revo Abbey, founded just two years before by reforming, austere and missionary Cistercian monks. And he is inspired by them. It's on learning of the monks at Revo that he realises he has a true monastic vocation and he wants to join the abbey. Did you mention that his father was a priest as well? He was indeed. He was a married priest and it was quite common for there to be married priests. And it's only in the 12th century that they are really suppressed. It takes quite an effort of reform on the part of the church to do away with married priests. One of the ways in which they do that is to forbid the offspring of married priests to themselves take holy orders unless it's within the context of monastic vows where, of course, you have to be celibate. So Michael's obviously covered how attractive Revo Abbey was to the young Aylred. Is it quite an attractive place itself as well, Nick? You would know it quite well. It's a very attractive place nowadays, I can tell you that. It's one of my favourite English heritage sites. It's a beautiful, beautiful ruin. One of the main things for doing this exhibition about Aylred is the fact that he made so many changes to that monastery. He really made it what it became before it came to its untimely end under Henry VIII. But um, it's a magical place. It's literally set in a beautiful, tranquil vale, surrounded by hills with trees. Sounds quite reminiscent of Mount Grace Priory, which we visited in person on the podcast um, probably two summers ago now, actually. This sort of slightly nestled religious space, this quiet religious space at the bottom of a hill. Is it a bit like that? Definitely, yeah. You get this sense of isolation you would have got back then when Noah Red first went there. There's a little river running down it, so it's got plenty of fishing. And, and yeah, it's a large nestled. site as well, isn't it? It is a large site, it's, and the church is absolutely magnificent. I think it's my favourite abbey. Yes. That and Whitby. Yeah, Whitby, I think, that also has comparisons as well, because Whitby has very, very tall sort of ruins, doesn't it? And I think this yeah. this Revo is very similar. Oh, it gives you an idea of the grandeur. It really does. There's something very spiritual about that place. And I suppose as well today, when you're standing in this grand religious place, which is vast, really, it spreads out into various other buildings, you mm. can actually get that sense of them feeling close to God, because... You stand up and you look up and if it's a nice sunny day, you've got the sun there right where the roof would have been, which I think it adds another aspect, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, I've been there in so many different weathers and um, every single time it, it's magical. You know, both spiritually and architecturally, Revo Abbey is the most important Cistercian monastery in the British Isles, and that is because of Aylred. And a description of the abbey made in the 12th century in Aylred's time still resonates to this day. It's in the biography of Aylred that was written by one of his brother monks called Walter Daniel. This says, high hills enclose the valley, encircling it like a crown. These are clothed in trees of various sorts, preserving the privacy of the vale and creating for the monks a second kind of paradise of wooded delight. And the first paradise was the monastery. Obviously, being in such a natural setting, I can understand with that quiet and those large vaulted ceilings, that would really get well, you closer to God, wouldn't it? 
Well, also, you know, and Nick also mentioned light, sunlight, you know, the Cistercian, a lot of Cistercian theology was based on light, the light of God. And, you know, in so much Cistercian writing at that time, you get references to brilliance and brightness and whiteness. And this is in Aylred's biography by his brother monk, Walter Daniel, opens up with a description of brilliant light in comparison to Aylred. I can imagine that light as well streaming through the uh, windows of Revo Abbey as well. Yeah, and at that time, the Cistercian aesthetic was very, very much no colour, no pictures, nothing of great value, is what Aylred describes the monastic ideal of art and architecture as being. And the monastery would have been glazed in a clear kind of greenish glass. But actually, the monastery outside and in would have been lime-washed, brilliant white. And did imagine the, the effect of the sun streaming through those windows, God's light streaming through. I can imagine that was quite a sight when he first arrived, having never seen the place. How did he establish himself at the Abbey? Well, he's no average recruit. And Revo is actually already led by an incredibly able man called William. He had been the secretary of St Bernard, uh, the greatest of all Cistercian saints at Clairvaux. William's chosen to spearhead Cistercian settlement of Northern England. And the Cistercians have sent a shockwave across Northern England by their arrival. The clamour for monastic reform, their back-to-basics way of monasticism, really, really does resonate with the spirit of the age, and it, it speaks to Aylred's soul. And he immediately adapts to the monastic life. He excels in his time as a novice and as a monk, and he is clearly destined for great things. What sort of tasks does he get on with as he arrives? Well, it's the, it's the three pillars of monastic life, which are prayer, reading and contemplation and manual work. And he's explicitly described in the contemporary biography written by his brother monk, Walter Daniel, as excelling at all three. What are his other jobs? I understand he was a bit of a book writer and a, a novice master. He was an incredibly important author. Over 20 works are attributed to Aylward, and we'll be talking about some of them in more detail. But before he becomes novice master in 1142, that's only eight years after he has entered the monastery as a monk, he is entrusted with a very, very important diplomatic mission. He becomes emissary of the abbot of Revo in a dispute about the election of a bloke called William Fitzherbert as Archbishop of York, and the Cistercians aren't happy about poor old William of York's election at all. They oppose it, and in fact, William is deposed. But Aylred is chosen as the emissary to go to Rome on this very, very important diplomatic mission. And on his journey to Rome, he gains first-hand experience of some buildings which are going to have a major influence on the development of Revo architecturally later on. Why was that mission so important? It's showing the importance of the Cistercians in Northern England. Here they are. William Fitzherbert has been elected as Archbishop of York and the Cistercians object to it. They don't think he's the right man for the job. They don't think he's led a spiritually pure enough life. And although his election is done in the right way, it's the opposition of the Cistercians and various other monastic leaders in the North mean that it becomes untenable for William and he has to step down. So he actually did his job then? there on that diplomatic He does mission. indeed, yeah. And he makes some very, very important first-hand acquaintances with very, very important people and visits some spiritually very, very important places, including early Christian churches in Rome, which have a profound impact on him. 
What other jobs did he have at the site, at the Abbey? Well, after his return from this uh, diplomatic mission, he becomes the novice master at Revo. That means he is responsible for the care of young men training for the monastic life. And he is an incredibly empathetic novice master. He nurtures people's developments to become a monk. And he writes at that time or shortly afterwards, uh, one of his most famous works, it's called The Mirror of Charity, which is a guide for novices. And again, it evokes the simplicity and the hardship of the Cistercian way of life, but also its spiritual rewards, that it's by sacrificing the ephemera, you know, the comforts of life, that you will find your true happiness and your true spiritual happiness. So how long does it take from Aylred to arrive and then become abbot? Well, he becomes abbot of another monastery, first of all, called Reevesby, which is a satellite or daughter house of Revo in Lincolnshire. And he's abbot there for four years, between 1143 and 1147. And he learns very, very valuable skills and monastic leadership when he's there. This new monastery, he nurtures and it prospers in every sense of the word whilst Aylred is abbot there. And in 1147, he is recalled to Revo, the community there, not unanimously, it must be said, elect him as their third abbot in 1147. But boy, does the monastery prosper after his election. And what was his impact on the abbey once he had been elected as its effective leader? His biography says that he doubled everything, including the number of monks and lay brothers and servants. That It's described that there are 140 monks, 500 lay brothers and servants. It's one of the biggest monasteries, if not the biggest monastery in the British Isles at this time. He doubles its endowments, the church ornaments, everything is being doubled. It is hugely prosperous. And also the religious life of the monastery just blossoms. It really is an opportunity to live the angelic life on earth. He also was writing some books while he was in his role. You touched on one of them, but um, what else did he write about? How many did he write? About 20 or so works are attributed to Aylred, and he is a very notable historian. He writes a number of saints' lives. He writes a number of histories of contemporary events, such as the Battle of the Standard, which is fought not that far away from Revo in the early 12th century. He writes very, very important theological works, but he's most remembered today for his works on friendship. The most important of which is is on spiritual friendship. It is inspired by the writings of Cicero and other and, and, and some early Christian authors, and it is still read today. And it's still an inspirational work for people to this day. So, around twenty books. Do any of these manuscripts survive today? Almost all of Aylred's writings are extant, not necessarily from Revo, but from other monasteries. They're quite widely disseminated. That gives an idea of their significance. I mean, 20 old manuscripts survive. They're dispersed now. Scholarly libraries, most of them are in Oxford, Cambridge libraries, the British Library, a couple over in Dublin as well, I think. But unfortunately, I think it's only one book by Aylred from Revo survives. He also writes about 200 sermons and his letters, which were known to still be at Revo in the 15th century, but have since been lost. That's probably the most significant of his lost works. It would have been intriguing to know what these letters to the great churchmen and lords and kings of 12th century England and beyond were saying. It's thanks to Aylred that the name of Revo was familiar to the royal courts 
of England, Scotland and France, and also to the papal court in Rome. I mean, indeed, it's under Aylred that people are flocking to Revo to become monks from across Europe. It's not just that they're drawing monks from their locality, which is so often the case, but people are making international journeys to become monks at Revo. And it's also said that men who had struggled in the monastic life to fulfil their monastic vocation elsewhere are able to do this thanks to the nurturing love, the compassionate leadership of Aylred. And Revo continues to be attractive to um, English Heritage members, visitors and tourists across England and the north of England as well today. Are there any objects at Revo Abbey today that we can see that would hark back to some of these surviving manuscripts, Nick? Yes, although we don't actually have any of the manuscripts themselves, there are lots of book fittings and book clasps and writing implements which date back to the time that Aylred would have been writing. I mean, you've got to remember that monasteries were centres of learning and writing, and that's what lots of their time would have been spent doing, is copying down religious manuscripts. So we can never say for sure this one was used by Aylred, sadly. Well, but it helps people certainly get closer to him, even if he didn't touch that particular implement. I understand that several miracles were attributed to Aylred. Michael, can you tell us a bit more about those? Yes, several miracles are attributed to Aylred. A number of healing miracles, whilst he's at both Reevesby and at Revo, he performs miraculous cures. A monk at Revo who is close to death is miraculously restored to the vigour of health by Aylred. There's a description of a man who had swallowed a tadpole and had taken on the hideous form almost of a frog whose health is restored thanks to Aylred. A lay brother of Reevesby badly breaks his arm and Aylred's crozier, that's the symbol of his abatial office, it's like a shepherd's crook, is passed over this guy's broken arm on three times and it's miraculously restored to health. He also has the power of prophecy, he can foresee events and he also has the power to curse as well. Now we think that's been something quite negative but it's definitely an attribute of a saint in the 13th century. Now all these are performed in his lifetime and when Aylred becomes a saint there's a reference in the 15th century to old and new miracles being performed in the church at Revo but unfortunately it doesn't tell us what those are. Right. And, you know, he's buried in the chapter house at Revo, one of the most important buildings of the monastery, which he himself has rebuilt, inspired by the architecture of early Christian churches in Rome, specifically because Abbot William, the first abbot of Revo, is being venerated as a saint, the blessed Abbot William, and he's laid to rest next to him. So there are very, very strong indicators of sanctity for Aylred that he's been venerated by the community as a saint. His veneration as a saint never spreads especially far, it has to be said. It's very, very much focused on Revo and the Cistercian Order and neighbouring monasteries. And his fame as a saint really only sort of extends towards the end of the Middle Ages when a life of Aylred is published in a collection of saints' lives, a printed collection of saints' lives, which would have disseminated it further. And he's listed in a catalogue of Cistercian saints around about the same time. So, you know, his, his saintly veneration is quite restricted on the monastery and the surrounding area. Is it worth saying as well that um, at this stage in the history of the church, the way that you get made a saint is different? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, he's a saint by acclamation. That although there are official canonizations taking place by the papacy, you can still be a saint just simply because of the fact that you are venerated as one. And, you know, we've already seen that miracles are being attributed to Aelru, which, of course, is working through Christ. And the word isn't in the least bit sinister, but a cult has developed around him. We've covered then quite a lot about Aelred, his mystique, his allure, his aura, um, why he was so popular, the fact that he was very talented, he rose through all these ranks, he had various jobs, he did a lot of nurturing of the younger talent coming through. So how many years is all this from the day he arrives to the day he dies? Well, he let's say he enters the monastery in 1134, he's elected its abbot in 1147, and he dies in 1167. So he's abbot for 20 years. The last years of his life, it must be said, he endures the most appalling, awful illnesses. It's incredibly moving to read the description in Walter Daniel's biography of Aylred's sufferings at this time. Precisely what he is suffering from is quite difficult to untangle, but it seems to have been a combination of kidney stones, shingles, arthritis, possibly gout, and serious, serious lung disease as well. He's in so much pain that he has to be carried by his brethren on a sheet, a suspended sheet. Another, there's a description of him being curled up by the fire in pain like a shriveled piece of parchment. It's incredibly moving. But during these times, he'd already lived quite an austere life as a monk, but he increases his austerities. And he finds incredible comfort through his love of Christ. It helps him endure these physical pains. He's finding increasing spiritual contentment in the face of these bodily sufferings. And he moves to his own house Before that time, Cistercian abbots were meant to have lived with their community in the dormitory, but he's granted permission, first of all, to reside in the abbey's infirmary, which he himself had built. He'd overseen this construction. And then to his cottage, a structure built for him to reside in, adjoining the infirmary, in which he builds in the floor of its chapel. It's like a grave. He calls it his mausoleum, where he contemplates on his inevitable end, and also on Christ and his love. It's very, very moving. And it's also described how even though he's suffering, he remains an intensely loving and nurturing father for his monks. And it's seen that the most wonderful informality is evoked of the monks coming into his, into his house 20, 30 at a time, and he's there providing spiritual leadership to them. I can imagine that um, it was very difficult for the monks around him at that time to sort of see him suffering, but also quite inspiring to see him ploughing on as well, getting closer and closer to God because he knows that he's kind of nearing death. I suspect that was quite a poignant time for everybody there at the time. Uh, yeah, indeed. When he actually dies, the opening of his biography, which is written very soon after his death, does give this sense of intense grief at the loss of their father, their father Aylred. But as well as it being, yes, Aylred's end is approaching, the love and warmth which he is extending to his brethren must have been the source of the most enormous comfort to them as well. So where is Aylred laid to rest exactly? Well, he dies on the 12th of January, 1167, which becomes his feast day, about 10.30 in the night. And after his body has been washed, it's been prepared for burial, it's been anointed, 
the next day and he's laid to rest in the chapter house at Revo next to the saintly, venerable Abbot William. And he lays to rest there for 50 odd years until about 1220 when his remains or relics, his bones are translated or moved to the church at Revo where they're enshrined in a precious metal casket above the high altar. And that's where they remain until 1538 when the abbey is dissolved on the orders of Henry VIII. The reliquary would have been taken to London and melted down. And it's probably the case that Henry's commissioners just scattered Aylward's bones. The final monks may have made some efforts to save them and preserve them. It certainly happened at other monasteries to honourably rebury them. But if that's the case, we just don't know what happened to them. That's really sad. I feel quite invested in Aylred's story now. And you've just sort of told us that there's sort of no trace of him anymore, really. Well, there is an enormous trace of him. You know, his influence resonates to this day. Well, his influence, metaphorically speaking, yes. That is the legacy that he would have wanted to leave. He left a legacy whereby he inspires people. My spine still tingles when I read some of Aylred's writings. When Revo under Aylred is evoked in the pages of Walter Daniel, that is his true legacy. That is his triumph. And even ruined Revo Abbey is today, it remains one of the great monuments to the human spirit anywhere in the world. That is largely thanks to Aylred. Absolutely. Well, let's bring in Nick now, Nick Collinson, to talk a bit more about that influence and that legacy at Revo Abbey as it is today. How are you exactly bringing Aylred's story to life for visitors during 2021? Well, this should have gone in in 2020, but um, obviously things changed. But we're going to be bringing it to life. I mean, as Michael has said, he is the most important person associated with Revo. And we really wanted to make people be able to get to know him and understand him. So this interpretation trail is going to be there for the best part of a year. It's actually called Our Ale Red. Mm-hmm. And that is because Walter Daniel, who Michael referred to earlier, was his contemporary and his biographer, refers to him as our Aylred, which is a very human term, isn't it? You know, you still people still say that. In yes, that but particularly in the north of England, where obviously he, he's from. You know, you, yes. you talk about family members as our Jack, our exactly. We want to really, really humanise him. And also, you know, draw to before the fact that he is responsible for what you see there today. So it's a trail about his fascinating life. There are 10 panels around the site, beautifully designed panels, nine outside in the ruins and one actually in the museum. And then we've drawn attention to six objects within the museum, which illustrate Aylred's time or life or experience at Revo. Yes, worth, um, worth, worth stating for people who aren't in English heritage or who are members that an interpretation is, is a sign or a... I mean, interpretation, it kind of means bridging that gap between the expert and the public. You know, it's just getting across, it's, it's interpreting the history. Yes, but making it, it make sense for people who yeah, aren't completely familiar with all the detail, basically. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it can be in its simplest form, panels around a site like this is, or in its most complicated form, it could be... It could be TV screens with videos and, and that exactly. sort of thing as well. 
Yeah. Going back to what you were mentioning about the museum exhibition and the objects on display, can you tell us a bit more about what those objects are and also how much work has gone into making sure that they really stand out for visitors? Yes. So we've got one of the best collections of monastic archaeology at Revo and the curator there, Susan Harrison, has lavished care on this collection over the years. Myself and Michael have worked very close with her to pick out six objects that really speak to Aylred's time and experience at the Abbey. One of the pieces that I really love is that Michael alluded to the fact earlier that he he had his own house Mm. and he was able to live there and see out his final days. And there is an archway from above the doorway which led out of that house. And it it amazes me that you think, I think this is actually the thing that Aylred would have walked under every day or been carried under more likely to be honest Mm, yeah but you know it's it's things like that which really bring it to life we've got book fittings and um, writing implements there is even a urinal which is uh, what monks used to diagnose illness michael alluded to the fact earlier that he was riddled with shingles and gallstones and all these different horrible diseases Mm. this would have been one of those diagnostic tools there is a scourge a monastic scourge which is a whip which was used for self-penance it's written by walter daniel his biographer that he used to immerse himself in cold water freezing cold water to calm the desires of the flesh and this really this scourge really shows you the guilt that he felt. Yes, well, we intimated about this in the introduction that Aylred has been called the gay abbot or the gay saint of Revo. You talked about there the pleasures of the flesh and trying to sort of stop that. What's the evidence for Aylred having been gay? Well, I mean, it's really difficult. It's a lot more complicated than saying he was a gay abbot, really. Gay, as a word to describe homosexuality, has only existed since the 20th century, and and homosexuality has only existed since the 19th century. So Aylred is from the 12th century, so we're going a long way back, and things were very, very different there. In the Middle Ages, sexuality wasn't something that you were, it wasn't something that you were labelled as, but it was it was something that you did. So if you were gay in the 12th century, or any of those early uh, medieval centuries, mm. would people have noticed, or, or basically did it just not exist? It, well, it, I don't want to say it didn't exist, but the idea of being gay didn't exist then Mm. no people's sexuality was as i said something they did rather than were it was something that was just a lot more fluid and i think actually today people's sexuality is a lot more fluid than we are led to believe you know we put ourselves in boxes and say gay bisexual straight lesbian whatever Mm. um in a a way that's restrictive yes and didn't people didn't have to conform to that that um classification back then yeah that's very interesting so how are english heritage treating this subject now bearing in mind that we live in this much different society and time (laughs) it's not easy it's not easy at all the thing about Aylred which is brilliant is that he wrote a lot and there was lots written about him so he's probably one of the monks that we know the, the most about from the 12th century scholars in the 80s and 90s were doing research into Aylred's writings and found evidence of same-sex desire. Since then, the research has been shown to be flawed. There's really no way you can prove it. You know, with history, you need concrete evidence. And with something like this, with queer history, as we call it, 
people didn't record it for a number of reasons. Firstly, the legality issue. But what happens if you read Aylred's texts and you read between the lines? Uh, let me give you some examples here, right? So we know that he was sexually active before becoming a monk. We know that. He wrote about that. He speaks in his early days. Somebody says, oh, he's so lucky to be at the court of King David, but they just don't understand about the evil that lives inside me, which I think is very telling. And the later works that he writes about the spiritual intimacy, rather than sexual or physical, it's this spiritual, emotional intimacy in a monastic sense that he feels in these same-sex monastic relationships. It's so, not about homosexuality, it's more about feelings for men. Do you know what I mean? What would you say, Michael, there? He has an intense spiritual bond with his monks, and that is the whole point of monasticism as well. Whatever love he feels for his monks is on a purely spiritual plane. You know, he talks about putting his arms around monks, but it's a fraternal love. It's a brotherly love. It's a brotherly love entirely appropriate for the cloister. He abhors, in fact, any kind of physical, carnal expression of love. It's what makes him so fascinating is that he transcends this, the need for the carnal, in every single sense of the word. And the description of his body laid out before burial is also fascinating as well. He's described as having the genitals of a five-year-old boy. And that shows that he has overcome the sexuality that had troubled him in his youth. And he'd gone onto an entirely different angelic plane. The way that English heritage are treating this subject, I suppose, is with a certain degree of nuance and, I suppose, letting the vid visitor understand and interpret exactly. Aylred's status as they wish. Yeah, I mean, we're taking the approach that, you know, because he lived such a long time ago, we have a word count as well. You know, we'll never fully be able to answer that question. He is a way of opening up a conversation about medieval sexuality in a monastic or religious setting that has never really been brought up by any museum or heritage organization, as far as I'm aware. We're laying the facts there that this is some of the evidence that has been presented. I mean, he's been adopted by lots of Christian organizations around the world as a sort of patron saint. There is the Integrity Organization in the USA, part of the Episcopalian Church, an LGBT Episcopalian Church. He features on a, a stained glass window in one of their churches. He is the patron saint of the Order of St. Aylred in the Philippines. And this is another LGBT-friendly organization. So we're acknowledging all of this. I think that's an important legacy to have for you know the 21st century as well so and it really goes to show that his influence and legacy go much further than Revo Abbey in North Yorkshire and, and across England it's uh, international yeah it's amazing and I think we do have a responsibility to be telling these stories we're making sure that we're telling every aspect of Aylred's life you know it's not an expression about his sexuality but we want to make sure that we keep that in because it's important for people coming to visit these days I mean if I had gone to an English heritage site when I was younger and I saw that there was a discussion about one of the monks sexualities I think that would have made my life a lot easier and I think we have a responsibility to do that yeah, I think that's a fair point. I understand as well that celebrity cleric 
uh, Reverend Richard Coles, who people would know from his TV and radio appearances and also from his music back in the 80s, took a televised walk around Revo for the BBC quite recently. Did you see him and uh, how did it come about that he would uh, come up to Revo Abbey? I'll hand that one over to Michael because uh, I didn't, I wasn't there. I wasn't really involved in any of this. And um, well, actually, nor was yeah. I until after it had yeah. been filmed. It was okay. filmed uh, January last year. Uh, oh, sorry, it was filmed in the winter of last year. Richard speaks with great insight about Cistercian monasticism and the ideals that underpinned it. And you can tell when he is on site at Revo that he is moved by the site. He doesn't speak explicitly about Aylred. But he does make that connection, a spiritual and emotional connection with the site. He's arriving there. He sets up from Susan Bank, which is, what, gosh, six, six or so miles away, perhaps a little bit further. And he walks around through the course of the day and he's arriving at Revo towards sunset when back in the Middle Ages, the monks would have been singing uh, one of the great services of the day called Vespers. And it is very moving when Richard is talking about Revo and he's making that emotional connection with the lives of the monks who live there. And it's especially appropriate, I think, that Richard is a gay man and is an ordained celibate priest within the high Anglican tradition of the Church of England. And to get his take and his insights and his emotional connection with Revo. And if the program's still on iPlayer when this is broadcast, I would recommend that you watch it. It's a very, very moving, interesting, funny, as you'd expect. It was everything you would expect from Richard Carroll's, actually. It strikes me, having discussed all of this now, Aylred's life, his death, the fact that he was venerated as a saint very quickly after his death, his investment in the church, all his very many achievements. He has a very varied legacy. How do you think he should be remembered today? I would say he would, he should and would like to have been remembered as a man of love and compassion who people could turn to to try and be themselves and realise their true vocations. That description in Walter Daniel of people turning to him and him being there to nurture them, to help them, to help them be what they are. And in that case, it's to be monks, to realize their monastic vocation. They've struggled elsewhere. They come to Revo. And how his vision of monasticism, actually his vision of humanity, I think, still resonates across the centuries. But it's still an incredibly moving story in 21st century largely secular Britain. And you go to Revo and it resonates with the spirit of Aylred. It is a temple. It is a monument to the human spirit. You know, some 12th century monastic leaders were not that sympathetic. And you read their lives and you read some of their deeds and difficult saints is how some scholars describe them. Aylred isn't a difficult saint. I feel like I am in his bosom when I'm at Revo, that I am enveloped in his warmth and in his love, and that the buildings, so many of which date his abbacy and embody his inclusive vision of monasticism, resonate with his spirit after all these centuries. He was a truly, truly remarkable man, and I'm delighted that English heritage are honouring him in this way. And Nick, I presume you're looking forward to welcoming people to join in with that inclusiveness by paying a visit at some point during 2021. Definitely, yes. I would say all the same things that Michael has just said. I think that, you know, he's he was just, no matter the religious aspects of him, 
he was just a really good man and i think that's what i would want him to be remembered about where remembered for but he's just he he was a he's a guiding example and i want people to be able to come to revo and see the interpretation on the site where he lived where he did all these amazing things and for them to also go away and do their own research on aelred as well because it's really important that this guy is not forgotten You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to discuss English Heritage's collection of other ruined sites, the challenges of maintaining them, and why they're not restored to their former glory. The interest and importance of the site is not always directly related to the state in which it comes, and actually some of our most precious evidence of history is from from our ruined sites. Thanks for listening. See you next time.